back to the topic. Back to the topic. Actually forgot it. With the lovely Mila, how are you doing today? Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Great. I'm excited. You excited for this week? I am. All right. So this was actually your topic. So um, really interesting to get into. Today we're going to be talking about what the heck is going on in Colombia right now. So uh, they've been in the news recently for um, one of their ports, but to kind of understand how it got to what, what it is right now, we're going to give kind of a little exposition about the history of Colombia. So basically, Colombia is uh, a banana republic. That's how it started. A banana republic, uh, it, was, it was owned by private corporations uh, based in America, but the workers were farmers in Colombia. They were forced to uh, grow monoculture crops, which were the bananas. So essentially that left them to uh, depend on the corporation for everything, basically uh, food, shelter, this and that. And at a certain point, they just essentially said, you know, we're not, we're not doing this anymore. You know, we, we were going on strike. So they stopped working. Uh, the United Fruit Company essentially um, tried tried their best to thwart it. They couldn't. the The labor movement it grew uh, it grew locally in numbers. Uh, the thing about that was that because it was an American based company, uh, the United States as a government told Colombia, "If you don't get your strikers in order." for messing up our bottom line, we're going to send in the military. And this was in the 1920s. They threatened to send in the Marines in the 20s to take care of this banana republic. Um, Colombia, they tried to go in and, you know, simmer the situation down a little bit, but, you know, they're protesters. They're fighting for, they're fighting for literally just kind of like incremental wins. They're not even fighting for anything significant. I think one of them was like six hour work days, a minimum wage, because what they were being mm -hmm. paid was essentially um, coupons. They were being paid coupons that were only good at the United Fruit Company for like those type of products. So they were just asking for a little bit of humanity and they they didn't give in like they shouldn't have and uh basically the colombian government just uh you know opened fire on the um on the protesters you know and that is historically called the banana massacre so fast forward 20 years we've got uh we've got movements growing we've got organizations uh what coming together coalescing and You've got like a real push for, you know, uh, sincere democracy. You know, you've got labor movements, you've got left movements, socialists, communists, anarchists, all you, all you can think of, and they're like really just fighting for 
the working person. And 20 years later, in 1948, another uh, flashpoint happens where one of the socialist candidates, his name was Jorge Gaetan, he was assassinated. And apparently he was a very popular candidate amongst the people because once uh, once the country at large uh, basically got word of this situation, um, it, it basically resulted in a civil war called La Valencia. A civil war lasting about a decade. And th this is in the, this is in the 40s, I believe. So um, country really hasn't been stable you know, at all in its entire history. And uh, we fast forward to today and, well, we don't fast forward. I just want to say that it's kind of, everything kind of fractured into a lot of factions. You've got the government, which is not as nearly of a stronghold as it is in the United States. You've got paramilitary forces, which kind of act independent, but also are funded by the government. You've got left rebels, You've got, you know, drug cartel or not, you know, the cartel, but you've got, you know, drug smugglers uh, trying to make their money. So you've got all these different forces and then you've got, you know, the people in the middle. So it's been like that for decades. And now we fast forward to the current point that we're at. Okay. Yeah. And and I think you make a good point of like we fast forward over a lot of history, but we have to because, um you know, history is infinite and we have like an hour ish so like <laughs> we gotta fast forward but yeah so what's happening right now in the colombian port city of buenaventura it's on the pacific coast and it is responsible for 60 percent of colombia's total trade and um yeah colombia's total trade it's it's responsible for 60 percent but the people the people who yeah, the pe international trade, the people who live there, though, the people who live in, in Buenaventura, um, they are like, uh, they're, they're living in poverty. And, and it's not just like, you know, they're living in poverty. It's like an enormous amount, a high percentage of people are living in poverty. Um, they're not seeing any um, revenue from the port, even though their port, their city is what creates like 60% of of Colombia's international trade, the infrastructure to get the goods from the port to like Bogota, Medellin, uh, Cali, Cartagena, all, all the other Colombian cities are actually very strong, but it's not like, again, it's not taking care of the people. And, um, you know, back in 1993, there was a like a human rights commission with the UN. Um, it basically, um, kind of like fleshed out the details, but made it to where um, Afro-Colombian communities and indigenous Colombian communities can, can share collective ownership of their land to preserve cultural identity. And um, it basically guarantees Afro-Colombian communities and indigenous Colombian communities to develop economically, socially, and according to like their own autonomous cultural elements on their ancestral lands. Well, the port of Buenaventura is an ancestral land for Afro-Colombians, especially. I wanna say over 80% of the people in Buenaventura are Afro-Colombian. It was a large fisherman's port. And um, that is like a trade that Afro-Colombians were traditionally in. They're seeing a lot of things um, like 
ruined with climate change. We will get to that later. <laughs> moving, moving on, uh, not moving on, moving forward, uh, identifying more, more issues with this. In 2017, um, or basically, so that, that was created in 1993, the right for these communities to profit off of their ancestral lands and to basically own their ancestral lands um, and have rights uh, as Afro-Indigenous or Afro-Colombian and Indigenous Colombians. Um, now we can like fast forward through so much to 2017 when they went on strike and it was a, lar a large strike. It was over 400,000 people uh, showed up to strike in Bonaventura about the government not upholding their promises. Armed groups had continued to move into the city and were basically holding the locals, um, I don't wanna say hostage, but hostage is a good word for me here. I might find a better word later. To right, yeah. <laughs> but basically holding, holding the town hostage and the government wasn't doing anything. They're still getting their trade that they need out of the port. And they're kind of leaving the citizens of Buenaventura or the locals of Buenaventura to fend for themselves against armed groups that are moving in. Um, and a lot of people are pointing to the fact that um, this, violates, this violates that right that Afro-Colombians and indigenous Colombians have uh, right. in, in the country. Right, yeah. So basically the civilians are being held at ransom. Yeah, and that was 2017. Now things have only gotten progressively worse. Last year in 2020, there was another there was another protest to call attention to the fact that they weren't getting like the care that they needed for COVID. Um, things were only getting exacerbated in the town because of COVID, and like armed forces were able to take um, more advantage of people there. Murders, uh, and then since you know 2020, we've entered 2021. Murders have increased. Um, like by 200%, there's, there's, uh, it, we're, I don't want to say we're hitting a breaking point because we hit a breaking point four years ago, but this is another breaking point. Right. Yeah. And it's really discouraging to think of, uh, the things that need to be done and are failing to be done, basically, uh, because Colombia is in such dire need of help. I'm talking from the, you know, the civilian perspective. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't seem like the police or the government military are willing to do anything about it. Uh, and uh, organizers, you know, pro well, not protesters, but, you know, actual people that build, uh, you know, coalitions and mm -hmm. movements essentially, those people are being discouraged, you know, actual like leaders on the ground are being discouraged because you have, you have those armed forces mm -hmm. uh, that are, that are in the area smuggling drugs, doing this and that, and basically intimidating the civilians. Would you say they're torturing people and leaving them for dead where the whole city yes. hear them? Torturing the people. Um, I think it was referred to as sawmills, sawhouses, basically, um, you can hear the person screams the entire night while they're being tortured. And it is a tactic to silence, um, to silence local activist leaders. And I mean, murder, extortion. Uh, yeah, they, there's human limbs that wash up upon shore. You know, that could be extremely <laughs> disheartening to start any kind of movement. It's just really, it's really bleak of a situation to, to see uh, Colombia in that situation with just no no assistance. 
especially, especially exactly. It's, it's uh, extremely discouraging when your government won't step up to help you because they're getting what they want out of the deal. And it's, it's this mentality of like, Oh, they'll be fine. We'll just get what we need out of it. We're getting what we need. Why do we need to pay attention to that? It's, Unfortunately, it has been historically happening in Colombia, especially among Afro-Colombian communities, especially among like indigenous Colombian communities. Um, but Buenaventura has a high um, Afro and indigenous population. Yes, and so, especially Afro-Colombian population. And so you talk about how Buenaventura is this kind of paradoxical city and that it provides over 50% of the goods, you know, because the port is there, but there's half a million citizens. I don't know how many people are in the city, but there's almost half a million in poverty, like in, you know, just abject poverty. And there's just nothing being done about it by the government. It it does seem kind of like this is being, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say orchestrated, but this, this is being allowed to happen and what I want to ask is, do you think, do you think they're actually targeting these people because of their ethnicity, or is it just kind of like a class situation? Because you know think, they do that in America with the pick your bootstraps up, and there's there's this agreement being had, but at the same time they're being strong armed. They're they're having their money, for lack of a better term, basically like deboed from them, and the government isn't stand, standing aside and giving the money back to them essentially. Right. And I think and that is a, a lot of the a lot of the problem is, um, you know, there was an agreement that um, that economically, socially, um, uh, like funds would be redirected back to these communities because these communities are providing for for the whole country. And that's just not happening. And you can like they're still building and they're still building and investing in these really wealthy neighborhoods in Bogota and in wealth and really wealthy neighborhoods uh, in like the capital in the capital of the country. But they're not doing that in the places that need it. And we see this around the world, but we definitely want to call it out where we see it. Like we can see this in the U.S. We can see this in, in Myanmar. We can see this everywhere, but we still have to call it out when we see it. It's still a problem. Exactly. And where it gets into really murky waters is whenever you talk about the government and how there's no uh, responsibility being or no accountability being taken from the government. What you see is just kind of, um, you know, blaming the other side. You see you see the the rebels on the left blaming the paramilitary on the right, you know, and vice versa. There's no. There, there's, there's, there's no connection whatsoever. It's just a constant blame game, and it, and it, it's, a, it becomes telling whenever, whenever you uh, actually look into the aid that's being had. And we talked about this. The United States was historically, you know, very involved in the uh, government of Colombia and the country as a whole, like I talked about at the beginning with the, mm-hmm. uh, with the Banana Republic. So mm-hmm. as of 2004, uh, Colombia was a top three uh, re- recipient of aid from the United States behind Egypt and Syria or Saudi Arabia. So mm-hmm. whenever you have the United States, I think 
we've given them about $3 billion in total and 75% of it has gone to the defense. And then whenever you have the paramilitary forces going against the left rebels and there's, you know, there's just kind of, there's no order being had is that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with all yeah. of this. You know, this is really wordy point of saying that the government's for a lack of a better word just allowing all of this to happen. Yeah, and I think it is also important. I just remembered like Venezuela was having, um, Venezuela was posing a threat to Colombia whenever they were starting to um, also not like uh, feed their people and <laughs> and, um, and we were seeing a lot of human rights violations and there was a lot of um, violence happening on the Colombia-Venezuela border Right. Uh, around that time but I think it's still important that like those don't get used on Colombia's own people like if 75 yeah. percent of the of our of our um of our aid was was to like arms I think it's so important they don't use those on their own citizens <laughs> um and I remember that being a problem on their other port um but Bar- at I think that uh, was the point though I think that's the point of the aid like not to be cynical but yeah can you go on I'm sorry yeah yeah no for sure and and that's that's exactly what I was about to say is like when they got that aid there was a lot more um human rights violations done to their own people on the port of Barranquilla which again is a similar port it's just on the Atlantic side of Colombia um same demographics even really when we're talking about it and and they were seeing a lot more like they were seeing a lot more like military style policing in their area after that um and I just it's it's something common and you asked earlier if it was a if it was a class thing it's a hundred percent a class thing yes unfortunately all of the countries in America are 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 um all of the countries and the continents of the Americas are tied up in this whole thing called like a post-slavery um government and a post-slavery like history mm. and and because of like the all almost every single country in in the in the americas has like systematically held black and indigenous people in the lower classes of their society so yeah it's a hundred percent a class thing but you can't That's ignore the race in it yeah, yeah you can't ignore the race in it it's yeah. it's one of those things right okay yeah well uh you know Doing the research that we did for uh, this conversation, um, it kind of seems like, well, even though Colombia is not as powerful of a country as the United States and their their country is not very stable at all, it's really, it's, uh, it's interesting to see the type of concessions that they do get. And it's interesting to see the type of things that um, like the working class and the citizens have fought for, such mm-hmm. as such as the port and being able to profit off of the port, you know, and in principle, they won that. It's mm-hmm. not it's not working out in practice at the moment, but they're yeah. If the government would have held right. up their side of the deal, like that would be right. But they're basically, entitled to it. They have- mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's a really really encouraging sign if you look at it in the American perspective, 
if you look at what can be the equivalent of a port, I mean, besides, you know, the ports that we do have in America, there's been similar conversations. It didn't get nearly as far as they did in Buenaventura, but let's talk about, you know, the natural gas in America and how much they extract in America, you know, on the land that everybody lives on. Mm-hmm. And these oil companies make so much money. There were conversations about, hey, if you're mining oil in this area, the people that live in that city should, you know, get a profit of some of that because you're making such ridiculous amounts of money, you know, mm-hmm. on your own. So from that perspective, Colombia, we can learn a lot from them because oh, yeah. they they've they won the right in Buenaventura to 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 take a pe- take a cut from anything coming through that port. And we should yeah, feel from- the same way about about oil. If we're gonna keep bringing it out, you know, then we should we should all be entitled to. It. I think they do that in Alaska, maybe. I think uh, I think that's actually a thing in Alaska, if I'm not mistaken. It is, a, it is a thing. It's like a, uh, I don't, I'm not an Alaskan citizen, so I don't really know, but I, I know that it doesn't necessarily go to the indigenous communities, but it does go to the people who live in Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. But, Which is, but I mean, you're totally right. Thinking about that from the, from a U.S. perspective, you're like, what? They did what? That's amazing. If they can follow through on that, that is amazing because, because, you know, we see, we see environmental disasters all the time in the U.S. and it is specifically in those communities that are taken advantage of and just having all of their resources pumped out from underneath them. Right. Um, what I was going to say is also in Colombia, uh, in, in Buenaventura, there is, um, I, w- I got at it a little bit earlier, um, a traditional like industry on the port is, is a fisherman's industry. And because of climate change, they're seeing a lot of, um, the fish have gone away they're seeing a lot of like decrease in, in their ability to support themselves on the port outside of like participating in, in, in international trade through that port. Right. And um, that's a really big problem. We're starting to see a lot more people speak up about, about that. Um, but especially, you know, that's just kind of to add to it of like the, the port and like the domestic or the international trade that comes through it to Colombia is a really big, like, it, again, 60%. And it shouldn't like, it's not the only industry there though, but all the other industries there are suffering because of climate change and these armed groups and land grabbing, illegal land grabbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that that's a really, I think that that's really important to also point out is like, it's not just the trade. But that's the reason that we see a lot of silence. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. Um, And uh, I just have really one more thing to add to this is basically um, you start to see how these things kind of link and you can relate them back to your own life and your own communities. And they are really encouraging in terms of building movements in your area, because whenever we talked about what's going on in Colombia, and that there's these people that are entitled to this, uh, to, you know, whatever comes through the port, and that's their, that's their right from the mm-hmm. government. Similarly, we talked about what's going on in India. The mm-hmm. farmers in India, they have a right from the government to collect from uh, their yield, whether it's good or not, from that season. But 
what's going on in India, why the farmers are protesting is because the government wants to relinquish their duties and, you know, open up private sectors and basically starve the farmers off kind of how the kind of how the banana republic went. I can mm-hmm. definitely see that becoming monoculture and the farmers having to, you know, pay off their or sell off their land in order to pay off debts. and Yeah, or just know, like monopolization. Exactly. So mm-hmm. every, you know, the the biggest thing to take away from all these stories is just to see the link and how that relates to you. And whenever we talk about coalition building, it doesn't necessarily have to be people, you know, in your immediate space, your state or your country. It's, it's a worldwide coalition because there's people in different parts of the world that are living just like we are, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're at the bottom of our economy, you know, lower middle class or, you know, lower class, poor, working class, what have you. And you hear people, they like to say, oh, you know, America, poor, poor people in America are basically like the richest 10% of the rest of the world or something like that. And I mean, I guess if this was like a, a global thing but you know this is america and Mm -hmm. that's that country so yeah i think a lot of people forget that a lot of poor people have their houses here on credit so um and their apartments on credit if if you lose that income you're homeless that is like a reality you're homeless and you're and then you're barred from getting an apartment and barred from getting uh, a house until you can produce extra funds to say that you're a trustworthy person yeah. It is people uh, in the third world countries or what we deem to be third world or developing. They may have huts, or, you know, small homes, but if they're not working, they can still retreat to a shelter. If you lose your job in this country, you lose your health insurance, <laughs> you lose your housing. You, you're just basically asked out. You know, there's no there's no. And you lose the ability to like get hot food. Yeah. Cause you can't get hot food on food stamps or readily available yeah mm-hmm. unless you go to like a, a a soup kitchen but yeah oh yeah i was like no i tried that 7-eleven they threw my shit away <laughs> they were like it's yeah. hot threw it away i was like you're gonna throw it away wow disrespectful <laughs> they said it's hot uh-uh can't be yeah doing they were it. like it's hot no <laughs> grab the cold one go microwave it at home oh i was like Yikes. I don't have one right now. <laughs> it's far away. Shit. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, that's a yeah. that's a side tangent. Um, <laughs> just just because I think a lot of people forget. Um, I think a lot it's of hard out forget. here. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I will say I'm a very lucky person, but very privileged person. But yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to. Uh, I do want to end it on, unless you have anything else to say. No, that was my, my last tie was just saying, you know, this, this is a, this is, it's not just the, it's not just the port. There's so many industries being affected by climate change, lab, land grabbing and um, armed forces and just pure neglect. I agree. 100% agree. So um, just want to end it on uh, a really interesting um piece of information you know so the um the county judge in houston texas is uh, a colombian actually oh, okay 
Her name is Lena Hidalgo. She is the first woman and Latina to hold the position. I believe okay. it's just in this county. You know, it didn't really specify, but yeah, she's the first woman and Latina to hold the position. And her birthday was this past Friday. Do you oh. wanna guess how old she is or how old she turned? 32. 30. Oh, oh, well, yeah. Hana, happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really cool. I think that's really cool. 30 years old. Cool. Born in Columbia, immigrated here when she was 15. I believe she went to college at Stanford. She wanted to continue her education and actually like, you know, I think she wanted to be like a judge, but after the uh, 2016 election, she was, I guess, compelled to run for public office. So she- I can is, see that. <laughs> she is the county judge for, um, for Houston, yeah. At wow, 27 that's awesome. years old. I think she became county judge at 27. Oh, that's how old I am now. <laughs> yeah. She's that's awesome. Yeah. That's so really that was, cool. That is really cool. Yeah. And she's actually been she's actually been doing a really diligent job in the city, especially over the past week, because you know, the whole state was without power and water mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. for for a little stretch. And come to find out, you know. The, this, the people of Houston were wanting answers. We were looking at our mayor, our county judge. They wanted answers. Come to find out, you know, it's it, it had nothing to do with anybody except the governor. You know, the governor and that bogus deal that he made with whatever that organization, Centerpoint and whoever, but yeah, that the whole grid situation was trash. And she handled it very, very amazingly. She was... She was on the people's side the whole time. You know, she has family members in Houston that were without, the whole state was without power, to be perfectly honest with you. You see Ted Cruz go out the damn country. So, mm -hmm. yeah, Cancun Cruz. Cancun Cruz. <laughs> uh. So, uh, yeah, I just want to say happy birthday to Miss Hidalgo. And yeah, happy birthday, Miss Hidalgo. Pretty nicely with the, with the Colombian topic we were talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, we are going to keep it going uh, on YouTube for the podcast. Uh, I think right. we're going to leave it there. And uh, as always, thanks for being here to have the combos with me. <laughs>